Would you bow with me, church? Father, Lord, this morning as we sing, we're reminded of just how good you are to us. For some of us, we've sung those words since we were kids. We've known for many, many years of how you've carried us through difficult times and challenging chapters. There were times when we were close to you, Lord, and on fire for you, and things were going in an amazing way, and you were so good to us to provide us those opportunities and to create those memories. There were times, Lord, where we were distracted, disappointed, frustrated, and angry. Father, we were far away from you. But you and your goodness patiently waited for us to come home. I know some of us, Lord, that are here today haven't run with you as long as others. And some of us have, are just beginning this journey. And Lord, we look at our lives and we realize that you are so good that while we were distracted with us and with ourselves and what we wanted out of life, you, you sent your son to be our savior, to provide us with an opportunity to have freedom and forgiveness and hope of heaven. No matter where we are with you, Lord, whether we're old or young, whether we're an old Christian or a brand new one, your goodness is apparent to us all. But there are seasons, Father, when sometimes we forget your goodness. There are times, Father, when things get difficult and we, we lose sight of what this life is really all about. I just pray this morning as we open your word, Lord, you might open our heart. You might remind our spirit about what life is really about and what it's really for. I just pray, Father, as we leave here today, we might leave here encouraged and challenged that no matter what the future holds, we will always be that bright light for you in this dark world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been taking a look the last couple weeks at the book of Revelation and how it opens. And, and, and I know that a lot of times when you say the word Revelation, a lot of people are like, whoa. But the first part of the book of Revelation really starts out as a simple conversation between Jesus and John. Really, in a way, between Lord and Master, but even maybe in a deeper sense, between old friends who had for many years worked together in ministry. John, at this point, is one of the last remaining of the apostles in the world. And as he as he writes the opening words of this, you just notice as John shares this, what the, the nature of this following book is going to be. He said, I, John, your brother and partner, which are great terms, right? That's a beautiful way to think about, about life. And, and that's one of the beauties of the church is that we're not in this, this thing that we call life alone, that we have other people to share our burdens with. None of us here has it all figured out. None of us has the strength or the energy or the courage or the stamina to finish the race on our own. We need Christ. We need God's power. But we also need one another to complete that journey. And, and as John opens this text, he reminds the churches, you're, you're, you're a partner with me. You're my brother. But notice as he continues, he said, your brother and partner in the tribulations and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. 
John is he's talking about Jesus and what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be a part of this, this thing. He, he says, I'm your partner, but I'm not necessarily partner in the kinds of good things that sometimes we want, we want to, uh, to think about life being. He said, I'm your partner in, in, uh, in, in patient endurance and tribulation and in the kingdom. And then John goes on to tell us where he is. He says, and on account of the word of God, or pardon me, um, on this, on, I'm, I, John, or on this island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is on the island of Patmos as a political exile because, as you remember, we talked about this a little bit last week, that John's, John's relationship with two things, and he notices this, and he makes note of this in the first part of Revelation. He says, because of my testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, because of what I preached and what I was convicted of, of in, the, in the person of Jesus, I find myself today as a prisoner on this island. Then he goes on to explain that on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week, that he was in the spirit with all the other people. He was alone. He was very isolated and separated there by design. But even though he was physically removed, he couldn't be spiritually removed from the church that was gathering all throughout the world to remember what it was that Jesus had done. And in that moment, when he was there in the spirit with all others, other believers celebrating what Jesus Christ had done, Jesus appears in a vision and begins to have a conversation with John about the future of seven distinct churches. The book of Revelation is written to these seven churches. And last week we took a look at the first of the seven, the church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus is, uh, is unique in that in many ways they had dealt with the tribulations and the challenges that the culture was throwing at them in a very strong way. They had, they had kind of dealt with the first wave of persecution that broke out in the first century AD with grace and with a great deal of, uh, of courage. The first wave of kind of persecution was, uh, was almost trying to dilute, if you will, the message of the gospel. And the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is this beautifully simplistic message. And then it seems like, though, that for some reason, as human beings, we think that we have to kind of improve on it. We have to add to it. We have to embellish it, right? And, and so there were a group of people at that particular time that were spiritual people, but they were not Christ followers. They were called the Gnostics, and because um, the Gnostics simply means the knowing ones, and they said, well, the problem with human existence is the flesh, is our, is our body, and certainly we all are familiar with the fact that our desires and our bodies can sometimes be a challenge to us. But what they wanted to do is they wanted to merge or blend Christianity, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with Gnosticism, and the, the, early the New Testament apostles pushed back at that vehemently and said, no, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ that saves the world, not mixing or diluting that message with every other thing. And, and they fought a, a, a brave fight, but some Gnostic teachings made it into uh, kind of the core understandings of some people at that time. And we are still dealing with some of those Gnostic kind of ideas 2,000 years later. And so it's just a real great lesson about the danger of blending cultural tradition with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're, we're not to do that. Those are to be two and completely separate things. The church in Ephesus had done very well at kind of pushing back against some of that false teaching, but 
Jesus had told them, however, I have this against you. I have this against you that you have lost your first love. Jesus recognized that the church in Ephesus was losing its drive and its zeal and its, its conviction. And if they didn't change soon, Jesus said, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove my candlestick from you. I'm going to take away uh, your place as a part of the body of Christ. And that's a pretty powerful, powerful statement. This morning, we're going to follow as Jesus moves from the church of Ephesus to a church in a place called Smyrna. And Smyrna is actually a city that still exists today, unlike a lot of these cities. Smyrna is in Turkey today, and uh, it, is, it, is, um, it is a modern city. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of it, and I'm not going to. Um, but uh, it is the third largest city, I think it is, in, in Turkey. I think there's something around, uh, 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 I don't even want to tell you how many people live there, a ton of them. Um, but the ancient ruins of the old city of Smyrna are still kind of built around by the, by the modern development in that place today. In John's day, there was one particular portion of the book uh, or the city of, of Smyrna that was uh, really kind of the center, and it was a marketplace that was called the Orga, uh, A-G-O-R-A, and, uh, and it, was, it was kind of the, the, the commercial center, if you will, of, of the city, and as you moved up through the city, you went through a bunch of kind of columns and archways. In fact, if you can kind of see in the background of some of the slides today, you'll kind of see that. That's, that's actually the ruins of that city that are in, in, in the back of our image. And as you came out of this colonnade sort of a place, you would come up on a, on a high place with large pillars, some of which have been, have been reconstructed today. And that was the kind of the, the trading center and the center of the economy for that entire region. And those pillars are in many ways uh, silent witnesses of the persecutions, of, or the second wave of kind of persecution that begins here in the church in Smyrna and other places during this period of time. And it wasn't, it wasn't just a kind of a diluting of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ with Gnosticism or other traditional teachings, but it became kind of an active persecution. It wasn't a physical persecution, but it was an emotional, social, and economic kind of persecution. It was in Smyrna. Uh, that the Christians were first banned from being a part or participating in the economy there. They were no longer allowed a, uh, a spot at the, at the large trading grounds, the Orga. They were no longer allowed to have businesses within that city of, of Smyrna. And so for many, many of the Christians, they had traded their livelihoods uh, for their faith. Now, you might think today, well, that, that's not such a big deal maybe, but imagine this today, that, that you and your family no longer were able to participate in the American economy, that you no longer had an opportunity to, to provide for your family's needs. There's a lot, a lot of pressure right there. And it's that kind of pressure that Jesus begins writing to in Revelation, the second chapter, where we'll pick up today in verse number eight. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there and you can follow along or, or follow along on the screen. As Jesus um, instructs that John should write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus introduces himself in a unique way to each of these churches, just kind of outlines some more of his characteristics. And then he gets down in verse number nine uh, to the reason of his, of his writing to the church in Smyrna. He said, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Remember, they, they had not been allowed for some time now to really be a part of that economy. And that had taken them from a place of wealth to a place of great poverty. And their situation was really kind of 
was really kind of juxtaposed against everything else around them. The city of Smyrna was, was mentioned by a lot, of, a lot of ancients, Greek, the poet, um, came from there. This was a place, was one of the most beautiful places in the entire Roman world. Everyone wanted to live here. It was one of the most affluent places that you could live. And here we find a group of believers among all the affluent people that are actually impoverished because of their faith. And Jesus notices that. He said, I know your tribulation. I understand your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they are not, but rather a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This, this letter is very, very unique because it's very, very short. Um, it's simply uh, four verses. And contrast that to what he says to the church in Thyatira. That's about a 12-verse statement right there. There's three times more material uh, to that church than to this church. And when you, as we unpack it, you're going to realize that this church was under a lot of pressure. And you might wonder why such a brief, almost dismissive sort of statement. And I think the reason why that is, and, and I've kind of struggled with this. You can argue with me. But I think the reason why that is is Jesus knew that he was not talking to rookies. He was talking to veterans. He wasn't talking to a group of people who had never fought a spiritual battle before. He wasn't talking to newcomers or, or people that had to be convinced, just new recruits that, that, that they had to carry through. He was talking to people who had already been willing to give up and were willing to give up whatever they had for the cause of the gospel. And Jesus wanted them to know three things that we're going to take a look at this morning. And I'm just going to talk to all of us in here this morning like we are veterans of, of spiritual battles as well. I, I realize some of us are just starting this walk. Some of us maybe are just exploring what it means to be a Christian. Some of us have been following the Lord for, for decades. I understand that this morning. But let's just imagine that we all are in some way veterans and, and, and Jesus is talking here uh, to this church full of people that have already suffered and he's telling them three things that they need to remember. These three things are not just things that the church in Smyrna needs to remember. These are three things that all of us need to remember. And if we keep these three things in mind, we will be able to do what Jesus says in the final portion and that is that we'll finish our race and be successful and gain victory. So in verse number nine, Jesus took note of several things uh, about the church. And the first one is simply this. He said, I know your trouble. If you've ever gone through a difficult season in your life, and probably most of us have here, you, you know that, that, that oftentimes those moments can leave us feeling empty and alone. Whether it's a financial concern or a family struggle, whether we're going through a, a personal struggle, um, maybe it's a health crisis in our life. And no matter if we're surrounded by people, and no matter if, even if people are checking in with us, it's just it's this deep sense of loneliness that comes from that vulnerability of just recognizing I'm not where I want to be right now. And Jesus wanted the Christians in Smyrna to know something. He wanted them to know, I understand what you're going through. You may have come to church this morning and you may, you may be struggling through something. Maybe people around you know what you're working through. Maybe people around you don't have a clue. 
Maybe you're one of those people that can put on a, a brave face and a big smile and move through a crowd and, and people just assume everything is okay in their life, but behind that, big fa- uh, that, that strong face and that big smile, you know that there's really big, big challenges that you don't have answers for. There are questions that, that nag your heart that you don't know how they're going to be resolved. And certainly this church in Smyrna was dealing with all these, all of these uh, emotions and probably more. And Jesus said, I want you to know I am aware of what you're going through. I understand your tribulations. I understand your poverty. There's a passage of Scripture written in the Psalms centuries before Jesus would write this letter to the church in Smyrna in Psalms 121 and verse 4. And although it's written to the Jewish people, it reminds us of an attribute of God that I think is important for us to be reminded of. It says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither, neither slumber or sleep. That's an important thing for us to remember, I think, all these years separate from this, is that God is never asleep on the job. I may be, you may be, all of us are human, and we cannot be fully aware, fully available, fully, uh, fully able to respond to every need and fully with the full amount of wisdom to know how to respond to all those needs. We just don't have that ability, but God isn't us, and He does. And, and as He's writing to, to His people centuries before, he reminds them that I neither, neither slumber or sleep. I'm, not, I'm neither lazy or disinterested, nor am I out of pocket getting rest. I don't have to do those things. I am, I am God. I am, I am all-powerful. I am all-knowing. I never quit. And, and you know, that, that reminds us of something that's really important for us to kind of grasp onto, that God knows and understands our trouble. Imagine, imagine if you would with me this morning that, that Jesus Christ were to write a letter to the church here at Forest Park. And maybe it were to go something like this. Dear Forest Park Church family, I know that you've been going through some really difficult times. I know that some of you are not able to provide for the basic needs of your family. I know that you feel like outcasts in your community, in your family, and with your friends. But Forest Park, I just want you to know that things are about to get a lot, lot worse. Before it's over, they're going to be killing you guys and, and, and imprisoning you guys. And, and, and can you imagine getting a letter like that? I mean, the church here is probably kind of excited to get this letter at first. And then they're reading, what is Jesus going to say to us? Oh, Ephesus need to pick it up. What? Oh, Smyrna's next. Smyrna's next. They're reading through it. And all of a sudden, Jesus said, I know your struggles. I know your trials. And it's going to get a lot worse. But God isn't asleep. God isn't ignoring this. It's just that God's timing and God's method of dealing with the darkness is different than mine and probably different than yours. There's this passage in Scripture that I often have to remind myself of, and I remind you of it because it's important. (laughs) God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When, When God claims something, when he says, it's mine, that means it's not mine. Jesus, God has said, I will be handling the vengeance. I will be handling the judgment of this world. I will be handling the condemnation. I will be handling the punishment. That is my responsibility, not yours, Jason. Now, if you're a little bit like me, hopefully you guys can identify with me. Maybe you can't. Maybe I'm just a rotten soul. But, but when bad things happen to good people in the world, I feel a need to fix that. 
And partly what I mean when I mean when I say I need to fix that is not only do I want to protect those people from more of those things happening or partner with those people to love them and help them through that, but I want to, I want to straighten out the aggressor. Anyone else kind of like me a little bit? Got a little bit of that kind of attitude? I, I hope you all do, but maybe I'm alone, all right? I, I want to deal with, I want to take matters into my own hands, and I constantly have to remind myself, Jason, God said that's not your responsibility. I know what's going on in this world. I am not sleeping. I know how the people, my children, are being treated in Smyrna. I know how they've been forced into poverty. I know how they're being persecuted. I am aware of those things. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. In other words, God is saying simply to us, I'll handle it. You guys do what you're called to do. You let me handle the vengeance department. Paul wrote, or uh, the writer of Hebrews, always we joke about this, but we don't know who wrote Hebrews, right? It's a great debate. But the writer of Hebrews writes to the Jewish people, and, and you guys know that the persecution against the church really started around the city of Jerusalem, and Paul was the leader of that, wasn't he? I mean, he was the guy that was imprisoning people. He was the guy that oversaw and gave permission to the stoning of Stephen. He certainly was uh, the guy that cast the, the wood on the fire that really fueled the persecution and eventual exodus of the Christian church from the city of Jerusalem. And the writer of Hebrews is reflecting back about all the struggles that have happened up until this point. And in Hebrews, the 10th chapter and verses 32 beginning, he says this. He said, but, the, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, and what he means by that is after you became a Christian, all right, after you knew what Jesus came into the world for, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. There was no better roses for these people. In fact, it was the exact opposite. And he, he reminds us of some of those things. He said in verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to repro reproach and affliction. So sometimes you were, you were mocked publicly, and some of us have felt that sting before. I have a good friend that's a, a preacher right now that's kind of going through some of that. Um, and uh, that's a difficult thing to deal with, isn't it? When you're, when you're publicly kind of mocked and, and, and made fun of, and, and certainly the church here had endured some of that. Uh, and, and not only that, but there had been affliction. That's just kind of a general term for meaning things were not very good. Hateful things happened to you. And sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. So sometimes it was happening to you or maybe sometimes it was happening to other people that you were familiar with in a church family, but you didn't ignore them. You partnered with them. You loved them. You supported them. You visited them in prison. You provided for their needs. You, you, were, you were partners with them in those struggles. In verse 34, he said, For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I've got to stop there for a second. Once in a while when you're reading through the Bible, you can just read through stuff and forget what he's talking about right there. Think about this for just a second. Notice what he's saying. Don't think most of us have this kind of viewpoint toward the world. He said, I'll reread it. He said, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. The New Testament church, most of the people in and around Jerusalem lost everything they had. They lost their businesses. They lost their occupants, their, their homes. They lost their cropland, and it was just taken from them. And he said that the church looked at that joyfully. They were, they were not mad about that. They weren't seeking vengeance. They weren't trying to go and start an insurrection or get that back. They weren't making claims to reacquire their property. He said, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. This church in the first century thinks different than we do, church. They just do. 
They have a very different relationship with this world than sometimes I think we do. And we probably have a lot to learn from them. Notice how he finishes this. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He said, since you guys understood that that what you were going to get was far greater than what you had given up. That, that you, you, you believe that, that what was waiting for you on the other side of this life was far greater than anything that you could offer in this part of life. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, he said lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures here where it can be taken from you. It can just fall apart because it's a part of this world. Um, you can lose it somewhere. No, he said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And this, this church had really done that. They'd really done a great job of that. And maybe that's why Jesus says what he says in, in the middle of that text. He said, I'm aware. I know what you're going through. I know the sufferings you guys are going through. I know the poverty that you're enduring. And then there's this, this set of parentheses in most of your Bibles, probably all of your Bibles here this morning. And there's a little phrase in the midst of there. He says, but you are rich. So Jesus is writing simple, four simple verses to this very persecuted church. Not one negative word does he write to this church. They're doing everything right. He says to the church in Smyrna, I see where you are. You're poverty stricken. You're afflicted. But you are rich. Now remember, he's writing this to veterans. He doesn't have to convince them of what they have. He's simply reminding them of what they have. I don't know if you are be like me, but I think that if I was in a place where I'd lost all my possessions, I was no longer able to provide for the needs of my family, I would not feel very wealthy. I wouldn't feel rich. And I think when we hear of the persecuted church in the world today, there's a lot of things that come to mind. Probably most of them aren't the word rich. We think of violence, and, we, and we're motivated by that. We're sad by that. When we hear of a, a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning, uh, Atapa text Brody. Atapa uh, works uh, with, a, with a mission in Thailand that one of their missions in the northern part of, uh, or the southern part of Myanmar was under attack by people around that area, and he asked for us to pray. And I think there's just a, a real heartfelt kind of a, a prayer and sadness that goes in that when we hear about violence happening to brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. When we see suffering, it, it causes us to feel feelings of pity or maybe anger. Uh, certainly, I hope we all go to God in prayer and we pray that God will give them strength and provide them protection and safety. And we certainly know stories of God doing that. Maybe it motivates us to look at our own freedom with a great deal of thanksgiving and say, you know what, we thank you, God, that we, we don't have to endure, endure a lot of the stuff that other places do. But Jesus didn't look at their situation with any of those viewpoints. He didn't say, I'm so sorry that you guys are going through this. I, I, I'm so sorry that you've lost. I, I feel sad for you. I, I, I pity you. Jesus thought more of them than that. These were veterans. These were, these were firm and hard believers. And he said, remember, you are rich. You are blessed first few chapters of chapter 8 in the book of Acts kind of gives us some perspective of that. Because when we think of, of a church in persecution, we think of the church in hiding, we think of the church in desperation, we think of a church on the run, we think of a church being squeezed and crushed to the point of extinction. 
But when the Bible talks about the persecution of the church, it talks about something completely different. Because this church in Smyrna and many like it are just beginning to face an oppression that's going to sweep for the next 200 years or so throughout the entirety of the Roman kingdom. And and they are going to try to kill them and persecute them and discourage them and sideline them and marginalize them and make laughingstocks out of them in every way that they possibly can. Sometimes they do it really obviously and sometimes they do it rather underhandedly. But ultimately, church, the crazy thing about this is that the more pressure they put on the church, the more persecution that comes, the more of them that are herded into the Colosseums and lose their life as a public spectacle, the more people that are crucified along the city streets of Rome, the quicker the church grows, the more fuel the church accumulates. And finally, it gets to a place under the reign of Constantine after the terrible, terrible persecutions of his predecessor, Diocletian. That Constantine finally realizes that if we don't accept this, this religious movement, this Christianity, the gospel will literally crush our nation. And he said, we are now a Christian nation. It's pretty much what he said. All the emperor worship of the past was jettisoned for at least a brief period. And Christianity was now the adopted religion of the Roman Empire. In 200 years one of the greatest and longest lasting nations of the world was crushed by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it didn't happen in the way we normally think that it happened. Jesus told that church in Smyrna, you guys are rich. You guys are at the heart of the battle. You guys are my elite troops doing my elite work. And they certainly weren't the first. In Acts the eighth chapter, we read this little passage in verse number four. It says, now those who were scattered, and this is talking about the persecution that happened under Paul, right? Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Everywhere they went, they were sharing Jesus with people. And so while they thought it was going to kill the church, it actually just spread the fire. While they thought it would control and contain the message, it actually radiated that message. And that's exactly what would happen, not just with the church in Jerusalem, but also with the church in Smyrna and all throughout uh, Western Europe, Western and Eastern Europe. So the rich church was standing on the word of God. They were rich because they knew what their foundation was. They weren't guessing if they were in the right place. They were rich because they were living to please God. You know, in our world today, there's just so much pressure, isn't there? We, 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 we try to please our, our family and we try to please our friends. We, we try to please the kind of peer group, the group, the greater group around us and try to make the culture around us kind of happy. We don't want people to be mad at us. And then, yes, we try to please God. The problem with that is, is that's stressful, isn't it? Because we can never, we never really please all those groups. If we do something to please our family, we're not maybe pleasing the culture. If we do something to please the culture, we find ourselves not pleasing God. This church was rich because most of the rest of that had been stripped away from them and they were just left with one thing. We are gonna please God. They, they were rich because they were counting on God's promises, not on their abilities. Because most of that had been taken from them. They were rich because they were working exclusively for God's kingdom. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus that we looked at last week. And in Ephesians, the first chapter in verse number three, this is the words that he wrote in kind of his beginning or his opening to his letter to the church there. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. It would be easy for maybe most of us to look at this church in Smyrna and say, you guys are You guys are to be pitied. You guys are broken. You guys are persecuted. You guys are pressured. You guys are crushed. We feel sorry for you. 
But Jesus has a different perspective. He looks at the church and he said, I know what you guys are going through, but don't forget you're rich. Don't forget you are engaged in the most pure act of living out the gospel that you can be a part of. Then he gives the church in Smyrna his third and final bit of information. He says, church, I know what you're going through. Church, I want you to see yourself from my perspective, not as broken, not as someone to be pitied, but someone who's rich. But the third thing, he commends them to remain faithful. He says at the last section, be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. The city of Smyrna, like so many Greek or former Greek cities, and Smyrna was founded by the Greeks, um, had, had a really healthy kind of set of games. They would run these games pretty often. Uh, it was kind of almost a weekly sort of thing. And, and the winner of the race for that particular week was given a, a laurel wreath or a crown. And they would get to wear that for the entire week. And they were something of a hero in that town. Anywhere they went, they went to the store, they went to the market, they went to visit family or friends. When they wore that, that wreath, it said that this week he was the fastest runner. This week he was the strongest boxer. These were the people that we are going to we are going to honor for this particular bit of time. And Jesus used that imagery to really kind of pour back into the church. And he said, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. Problem with, problem with that little laurel wreath is the thing wilts in a few days and it was just given to you by the governor of the town or, or the officiant of the games, right? But Jesus is telling this church that's on, it's struggling. He's like, look guys, if you are faithful unto death, I personally will hand you an award. I don't know what the greatest award you've ever been given is. Uh, years ago, I had a friend that was a, or a coach, actually, that was a part of an Olympic team, and he was given a, a gold medal by the President of the United States, and that was a moment that he had as a picture in his office, and it was something that meant a lot to him because here he was presented with this, with this award, but by a very, by a very important person, and uh, that was something that, that all of us kind of Kind of took a little pride in along with him. But this is something completely different. This isn't just a president that serves for a season of a country that, that has only been around a short part of human history. This is the creator of the universe, the king of all things, and the one who's going to reign forever. Jesus said, I will personally make you the victor. We often lose sight, I think, church, of our heavenly reward due to our attachment of this world and the things that we have. If we're honest, we, we're so busy and we're so hassled with the stuff that we have here that sometimes we forget that really all this is just for a little while. Maybe the church in Smyrna was rich simply because everything that was distracting them had been taken from them and they could see life for what it really was and what really had value. They knew exactly why they were running the race for Christ. It wasn't just to fulfill a tradition or something that they'd always done, but they were running with purpose. They were running with dedication. Around this period of time and a little bit later, the real persecution against the church began to become more and more violent. John had a, a mentoree or a disciple by the name of Ignatius. Ignatius uh, was, uh, was, was a principal leader of the church in Rome and uh, had been a close friend of John's. And, and Ignatius in, in 107 AD was convicted of crimes against the government of, of, of Rome 
And during one of the weekend games, when there were a lot of, uh, a lot of activities, Ignatius was led out in the middle of the Colosseum that you may visit if you ever go to Rome today. His sentence was proclaimed to all the people gathered there. And uh, then he was left alone in the ring as they, uh, as they loosened uh, hungry lions. And the crowd watched with great, great deal of, of joy as the hungry lions tore this godly man to pieces and his blood was shed there in the sands of the Colosseum. But Ignatius would not be the only person that would suffer and deal with the challenges of what, uh, of, of what, of what uh, Jesus had foretold here in the first part of, of Revelation, the second chapter. Jesus concludes the note to the church in, in, in uh, Smyrna with these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Ignatius faced his death with a, with a great deal of confidence and with a great deal of, of conviction, but he was not alone because Ignatius had also a disciple that was named Polycarp. And Polycarp's home was Smyrna. Well advanced in years, Polycarp was brought on trial himself by the officials of the city in which he had called home because of his love of Jesus Christ. In 155 AD, he was asked to recant his faith but he would not do so. And his words have inspired generations of Christians that follow. And I want to be clear and let you know that this is not a story we find in the scripture, but this is a story we find in many places in secular and early church history. As Polycarp is asked to renounce his faith in front of the tribal council, he gives these words. 86 years I have served him to him being Jesus. And he has done me no wrong. How can I speak evil against my king who saved me? Jesus had said that if you confess my name before men, I will also confess your name before my Father who is in heaven. But if you deny my name before men, I will also deny your name before my Father is in heaven. And certainly, I, I have to believe that that theme was kind of burnt into the heart and to the mind of Polycarp. And as he's asked here, as an elderly man, we believe he's somewhere around 100 years of age. He's drug out in front of all the people of his community. And they said, we want you as the principal leader of the church in Smyrna to say that Jesus Christ is not Lord. And Polycarp said, I'm not going to do it. 84 years I have been a follower of Christ and he's done me no wrong. <laughs> I cannot speak evil against my king who saved me. So the proclamation was given that he should be burned at the stake for his crimes against the Roman government. Remember when, when Jesus said, I know of those of the synagogue of Satan? It, it, it said that, that a group of people who were of that sect, that group of people that were constantly harassing the church, actually were the ones who scampered away and collected the firewood to build the pier to burn him on. And they bring Polycarp out in front of the entire community. They've gathered around. The church is gathered around. Other convicted Christians are gathered around. And they, they wanted everyone to see, this is what happens to someone who dares to stand up against us the Roman government. They were going to 
And we're going to either tie or nail Polycarp's hands and feet to the pole in the middle of the burning pier. It's not easy to understand from history. Some accounts have it one way or another. Polycarp told him, you don't have to fasten me there. If this is your sentence, if this is your decision, if I should go and die in the flames because I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then I will gladly go and take my place voluntarily. Tradition says that he walked over the pile of wood that was stacked there, put his back up against the post, and stood quietly as the man walked forward and lit the pile of wood on fire. And as the flames that would cause his death grew higher and higher and higher, Polycarp was praying for the very people that had put him there. Some traditions say that at some point someone so filled with remorse as to what they had done that they sent an executioner forward to take his life quickly. But all we know is, is that that man stood on his very own execution block voluntarily saying, I will lay down my life if that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Church, there are people in the world today that are in the Smyrna group. And maybe you and I have felt that pressure of having to disappoint people around us or take a stand that culturally is not comfortable for us. We are not alone. Jesus knows what we're going through. He reminds us today that if you have the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are rich. And that if we are faithful until death, he himself will give us the victory. If you're here this morning and you know that you really never started running that race and it's time to get serious about your walk with God, maybe you know you need to be baptized into Christ and it's just not something you've done and you know you need to do that. Maybe you, maybe you want to recommit your life. You know what, Lord, I, I've just kind of been here and there with you, but I know I need to be 100% on fire for you. You can come right now or you can bow your head in the, in the pew and say, God, help me to get on fire with you. Maybe you need to talk with one of us. We're not going to leave here today. It's the last one of you go. We'd be happy to sit down and visit with you. We want to make sure that every one of us are like Polycarp, on fire until the very end.